0: This week on Single Malt Matters the American Single Malt Whiskey podcast I'm continuing my conversation with Mr. Stephen Osborne of Stoutridge Winery and Distillery in Marlborough, New York.
1: So already I have a step where the new make whiskey which I don't I don't know that anybody's it's on anybody's radar at all either, right? But if you if you go to a Scottish distillery every now and then you find one that gives you this thing. And I think it's because traditionally uh, an enthusiast would like to see Okay, what does your malt taste like? You know, what does it taste like before you do your your other things? And for me, a little more lactic acid, bacteria contamination gives it a fullness, gives it a richness of flavor that is a natural part of the grain germination, fermentation, and not a part of distillation, maturation. Surprisingly, I'm finding that Angus's idea, which is a Scottish distiller's idea, that you should open top wooden ferments in order to get some sort of contamination from the building. It's amazing how positive an effect that is on on the whiskey.
0: Now, before I get into this week's episode, I, I want to clarify something. This podcast ultimately is for people who love whiskey. And, I don't know, maybe also want to have a deeper understanding and uh, just maybe an opportunity to look behind the curtain of how it's made. This isn't specifically for distillers, although I do think it would be interesting from a distiller's perspective to maybe see how other people are doing it. So, just like in last week's episode, I'm not assuming that if you're listening, you're either a distiller or a maltster so whenever there's an episode where things might start to get a little on the granular or nerdy side i'll start the episode out by talking about those terms and concepts so that you don't wind up checking out when we get to that section of the show so this week we're going to pick up where we left off with steve and really dig into his approach to malting because again i think this has such a huge impact on the overall finished quality of of the end product. We're going to talk about his equipment selection and get a little bit deeper into how he malts. Then we're going to bump up the Nerd Factor just a little bit and and talk about his unique native microbiome at his facility, uh, comprised of his own blend of yeasts, bacteria, fungi, and other little beasties that all contribute to the unique fermentations that he gets. So here's some of the more obscure stuff coming up. At one point, Steve talks about overconversion during malting. He's talking about what maltsters typically refer to as overmodification, or letting the barley go a little too long in the germination process. And this isn't a good thing because the barley inherently wants to use all those sugars that have been developed throughout the malting process in order to grow into a new plant. And if that happens uh, the result is less fermentable extract in the malt and that decreases the overall potential spirit yield of that batch. He's also going to drop the term diastatic power and all that refers to is the sum of a malt's enzyme content which directly correlates to the malt's ability to convert remaining complex starches into shorter chain fermentable sugars. And if you're curious or find yourself at some point at an obscured science term trivia night, The word comes from way back in the 1800's before we knew that there were a number of enzymes synthesized during the malting process and they were all kind of lumped together into one name and that was diastase. We know now though that the primary enzymes are alpha amylase, beta amylase, limit dextrinase, and alpha glucosidase. But (laughs) anyway yeah that's diastatic power. Steve also mentions the Maillard reaction and if you've ever made toast you've experienced the Maillard reaction. Basically, it's just the term that's attached to the reaction that happens when sugar and amino acids um, are in the presence of heat, and that creates color and flavor. So that's why toast is brown and tastes, well, toasty. At one point, he also talks about turning beer into whiskey, which is pretty much what you do when you're making whiskey. Matter of fact, when you mash your grain and take your wort through fermentation, that's essentially what it is. Matter of fact, that's one term for it. It's spelled differently, but that's exactly what it is. And just for the sake of context, the general rule is that delicious beer typically makes for, at best, mediocre whiskey, and vice versa. A couple more terms you'll hear. When Steve talks about different barley varieties he's malted, he talks about their acrospire growth. And acrospire is just another term for the emerging stem of a sprouting barley kernel, and its length is one of the ways Maltsters determine how well modified, or germinated, the barley is. He also talks about pre-sprout, and this is something that maltsters dread. Pre-harvest sprout is exactly what it sounds like. It's when grain starts sprouting while it's still in the field, before it's even harvested. And this can happen for different reasons, but basically, it just sucks, like a lot. Because you're starting with sections of barley that are basically going to behave completely differently from the rest of the high-quality malting barley in that uh, particular lot. And ultimately, it's just not going to result in anything as good as if it wasn't there. It's not that you can't malt it, even though you wouldn't if you had the choice. But if you do, you have to malt it as quickly as possible. And even then, you're probably at best just rolling the dice. And just another little nerd tidbit, HPLC, which gets brought up when we're talking about barley selection, stands for high-performance liquid chromatography. And that's just a technique used in analytical chemistry to separate, identify, and quantify organic molecules, biomolecules, ions, and polymers. And then finally, on the distilling side, about 40 minutes in, Steve mentions the term line arm. So, this is kind of a big deal in whiskey distilling because it's one of the major practical differentiators that has a huge impact on the overall character and flavor of a finished spirit. So, essentially, the head of a pot still is connected to the condensing system by a copper pipe called a line arm. And the line arm will bend toward the condensing system at a particular angle. And that angle will determine how much of the spirit either passes into the condensing system or refluxes back down into the wash. And this is basically why a lot of single malt distilleries have very similar flavor and viscosity characteristics because that distillery is running their spirit through the exact same stills batch after batch after batch and the angle of those line arms never change. And Steve talks about this a bit, so just watch out for that. So, Steve, going back and talking about controlling the variables throughout the malting process, it's interesting that a lot of what you were saying about winemaking being a combination of art and science is very much analogous to malting. And, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that that most people just don't understand, you know, like from the biochemical perspective, understanding what's going on with the grain, which is really what it's all about, because once you hit that go button you can't hit the stop button until you're done. And so as a maltster, you have to control all those variables. And there are a lot of variables that are always changing. And there's all sorts of equipment and technology out there to help you control them in different ways. But part of the challenge with that is trying to figure out what's going to serve your needs in the best way, given your specific circumstances, like where you live, what kind of temperature swings you have throughout the year, humidity swings, barometric pressure. And it can start to get really challenging if you get that granular with it. So having gone through the process now, how would you recommend that someone else approach this specific aspect of malting your own grain on site?
1: It may be a little bit like, so I was a rower in college, like Crew. And one of the things that Crew taught me was like, You have to have a machine that is compatible with you, (laughs) right? If you're rowing in a skull, you know, there's no point. There's zero point in in bucking it. And so I think that that's probably a really, really good way to think about, about the malting situation. And I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you go around testing boats to see which one you like to row you know i built my malting system i knew how i thought about it and so if i build it i will build it in the way that i think about it and so so maybe the the thing goes in a circle but i still like rowing it <laughs> you know so that's kind of how i felt i was really happy with what i built i realized here's some problems and the longer that i used it oh my god you know i, I knew that there was some basic problems going on but boy she was nice to row you know she. Fly and I was happy with the whiskeys. And so, in a, in a way, you think, well, just stop there, just keep going. I'm like, nah. but I knew, I, I knew, I knew this thing is going in a circle. And you know, I should probably get a boat that doesn't go in a circle. One of my big advice pieces of advice to anybody thinking about malting and malting for whiskey is I don't know how you do it, but you got to go try some boats, you got to go work on some machines. If I knew now and I knew then, I would have taken a year and I would have traveled around to breweries. And I would have, which machine looks like it's how I'm thinking? And if none of them are, then you're gonna build your own. If you're gonna build your own, then you're gonna to go to this malting conference and learn how to, how to think about it before you build your own.
0: And I think that one really important thing to keep in mind, and I can say this from personal experience, is that there is no magic bullet when it comes to malting, you know? I mean, ultimately, this is a process that is tantamount to trying to dance with Mother Nature, except that she doesn't like to follow a pattern. And so you have to understand that going into it and realize that there's no single machine that's, first of all, ever going to replace the role of a maltster. But second of all, um, that different machines in many ways are going to be variations of each other that are going to allow you to control the variables to varying degrees, depending again in large part on their physical locations. And it's really understanding the process and the variables that you're going to be working with in order to really know what the best solution is based on those specific parameters. You know, again, weather conditions and trends, utility costs, batch size. And so from a conversion and efficiency perspective, what kind of spirit yield are you getting out of your
1: malt? So, yeah, we, we, we malt 1,000 uh, pounds, 1,050 pounds. And the goal is to make uh, 53 gallons um, of 115 proof whiskey. So somewhere in there is the math. You can, you can do all the math from there. One thing I will say about about that is is that I as I've gotten better as a, as a maltster and as I've perfected my system, as we've learned more about it and and realized, oh my gosh, air rests are a thing. <laughs> that it seems to me that I may be getting a little bit more whiskey out of it, but it doesn't seem like I'm getting that much more whiskey. I'm much happier. I've got control. I can dial in my diastatic powers to where I need them to be, which in theory would lead to to more fermentable material. But I would say that I'm a small distillery with small equipment. We're kind of lossy because we're small. And I think the little bit of losses here and there tend to be as great an error as, as the, if your diastatic power is 150 versus 250. It doesn't seem to me that I'm losing a lot of carbohydrate by over converting which was one of the things that, that keeps coming up. If you overconvert, you lose, you lose quantity. And maybe a big brewery that can say, oh, and by big, I mean, not, I don't mean that big because I'm tiny. They can really see it. They can really dial it in. And, and and when the front office is saying, this is the profitability we need, you know, a little bit of variation. And so you're really, really dialed in. I don't know that when you're malting 1,000 pounds at a time, and wooden fermenters and, you know, and turning it into one barrel of whiskey. I don't know that, that the error of the manufacturing because of the small scale isn't as great as, the, as that sort of error in malting. But as you get better at malting, you get better flavor. There's no doubt about that. You'll, you will make better whiskey. Um, you just may not make more because you've worked on. So if you're working on if you're working on the efficiency of your small malting operation to make whiskey because you need to save a few dollars, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. But you wouldn't be malting if you're trying to save a few dollars. And
0: so talking about kilning and color of the malt, how much of a detectable flavor do you find in the whiskey based on the color of your malt?
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because we I have a still that's a direct fired still and I want a direct fired still because of the samples that I was tasting from Angus back in the beginning. Boy. Yeah. You know, a fried egg is not a boiled egg and I kind of want a fried egg and it's the same in whiskey. Uh, If you have a direct fired still, you're creating flavor compounds that aren't created in steam stills. And um, if you want that fried egg, you're going to have to fry it. So we have a still that's directly fired. And then because of, because of my synergy with Angus McDonald, I, I have open-top fermenters. I'm harvesting Biome from my building. It's a winery for 15 years, been producing natural wines. There's a lot of yeast in the air, and I actively harvest those. And, and that alters the flavor in a subtle way. So, I mean, I'm, I'm malting because I want the flavor of germination to come through the grain, I'm open top fermenting because I want the biome of the building to appear in the whiskey. I'm doing direct fire on my still because I, I want that fried egg you know, idea, that that pyrolysis compound things. I want those things to come through. And these things are all kind of subtle things. So back when I was deciding how I would kiln, I thought, well, I for sure want to kiln at low temperature. I don't want to be creating these maillard reactions. Um, I don't want to be, you know, turning sugar into into flavor compounds, because I'm afraid that that stuff is gonna be like the barrel and the wine, right? I'm afraid that it's gonna interfere with the transparency of the whole idea. So when we are building the kiln, uh, and by this time, Angus had passed away, unfortunately. He died sort of midway through the, the, the building out of this place, that was really sad. But then I, by then I had met this guy, um, Aaron, at Hartwick College, and so I was talking to Aaron about about kilning temperature and my ideas about using low temperature because I didn't want the malt I wanted the malty I wanted the germination flavor of the malt to be the primary characteristic, and so I built a I had built a um, a kiln that would max at one hundred and twenty Fahrenheit that typically runs at one hundred and ten and Aaron said well you will get it dry, and I'm like oh you can't get it dry at one ten I was like all right, and sure enough. Um, our experience was we weren't being able to get it very dry at 110. So, um, but this is August, September. By November, we were starting to get our moisture levels down at around five, six, five, six. Before that, there were sevens all the time. And at five, six, you're getting in the game, you know, you're getting to have storable malt at that point. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm not that far off at 110. Now, um, and then I went to the malting conference and learned a lot, learned how to measure, redid some things. Now, um, 105 degree um, kiln temperature, I get to 4% moisture in 34 hours. Yeah, so I, that, the one thing that I would say is this idea that you have to use high temperatures to achieve dryness in malt is is not true. Uh, it seems to be a pervasive idea, but it's not true. I'm using 105 degrees and I'm getting 4% in less than a day and a half. So now that may be a long kilning time for most guys, but but it's working out. It's working out great for us. Now, since then I bought a little oven and I've been roasting some malt up a little bit because I'm a curious guy and everybody's saying you should give this stuff a try. And I've been making a couple of beers from my malt in order to see what this is all about. And what I would say is that for beer, yeah, you absolutely want to be roasting these things and developing that flavor. But my own opinion on it is, is that if, if you're someone like me that's where you want the material to be transparent to what it is, um, then low malting t- or low kilning temperatures and allow the, allow the flavors in your other steps to show through. You know, don't overspice the soup uh, because then it's hard to see the subtlety uh, in the soup. Um, and I, I kind of see high temperature kilning is, is overspicing. Um, now, that being said, I haven't done it. I haven't done, I've made beer out of it, but I haven't turned the beer into whiskey. So I don't really know the effect on all that. But I think it's, you know, it's one of these things where the universe is like infinite <laughs> and you've got to make some, some pretty big decisions early on as to, as to what you're trying to do. And I think I've just, I'm going to be that guy that uses very low temperature kilning on the theory that it's gonna allow the biome of the building, that the influence of the direct fire still uh, to shine through. And also, initially I was a person that, and you can be sympathetic with this, that I would not be certainly using peat or anything. I wouldn't be putting peat into my, my malt whiskeys because that would certainly obscure the flavor, or at least that's what I was thinking uh, back then. And so my plan was to use uh, vineyard cuttings. So chefs use vineyard cuttings to smoke salmon. And so I thought, well, how bad could it be? So I started using a little bit of vineyard cuttings. I bought a little grill. I sent you a picture and you can see the grill sitting in the kiln. And so I put some vineyard cuttings on there and, and I adjusted the temperatures and I, you know, at a certain temperature, the smoke had a nice flavor. And that's another thing is that, is that you don't have to use peat, but if you use wood, I would highly suggest that you buy a variable temperature grill and you figure out where the good flavor and smoke is because it's, there's going to get different flavors of smoke at different temperatures. So I was for that. That was really cool. I'm a winemaker, I turned distiller. I'm trying to make transparent malts to see through the flavor of all these different steps. And now we have a little bit of smoke, you know, not too much, a little bit of smoke from the vineyard cuttings. Um, and since then, I've gone, I've gone on to burning uh, bitter orange peels that are leftovers from my my orange liqueur production. So I've been, I've been burning um, bitter orange peels that have been soaking in high proof a rye whiskey for a month and um and the flavor of that the the, the smell of that smoke is just it's so amazing and it integrates into the malt in a really cool way It, it it doesn't overshadow anything it's very synergistic with the malt so that's what i'm doing now so i'm kilning at low temperature i'm introducing um a little bit of smoke from these bitter orange peels Uh, um, and getting this really nice, you know, I think a a flavor that integrates really well, you know, it's nice because it's also, it's using up materials in a nice way. I don't, there's one more thing I can do with these bitter orange peels, which are a pain and they're a lot of work. So it's nice to figure out multiple things to do, you know, with these things that are costing you a lot of money. So I think that probably more than answers your question. (laughs)
0: So now we start talking a little bit about his barley. Now keep in mind here that there are all kinds of different barley varieties out there that all have their own unique characteristics. They all have pluses and minuses, some grow better in certain climates, Uh, they have different protein contents, and I mean, I could go on and on, but the bottom line is that certain barleys are just better suited to be used as barley for all malt distilling to make single malt whiskey, And one of the contributing factors that plays a big role in making that determination is something that we've only recently started talking about in the past few years, but that they figured out in Scotland decades ago. And that's whether or not a barley is a producer of a carcinogenic precursor called glycosidic nitrile. We talk about it here for a few minutes and Steve refers to it as glucoside nitrile, but we're talking about the same thing. So here's why this is such a big deal. First off, it isn't detectable until after barley has been malted. We can't just test raw barley for it, so it's really important that distillers find out data specific to the finished malt that they're starting with. But the thing with GN is that in the distillation process, specifically in the presence of copper, the reactant compound it creates is called ethylcarbamate. And on paper, it's potentially nasty stuff since it's a known carcinogen. But the thing is that it's pretty commonly found in all things fermented to varying degrees. And as far as alcoholic beverages go, while it's in pretty much all things alcoholic, it's found in the highest concentrations in distilled spirits. So think about it kind of like radon in your basement. If you have a basement, odds are to one degree or another, you've probably got radon down there. And sure, if it goes unchecked, it could potentially not turn out well for you if you live in the basement for a long time and you have prolonged exposure to to high levels of it. But there are things you can do to mitigate that whole situation. Same goes for single malt whiskey. What they did in Scotland is regulate against GN producing barley varieties altogether. So over there, it's not even a concern anymore. Here in America, though, since... Single malt is pretty much a new thing. Um, We haven't really looked at this much yet. But just like radon, you can mitigate the potentially negative impacts by starting with a non-GN producing barley, uh, like a barley variety called Genie or one called Odyssey, which is what Steve uses. So Steve, um, digging in a little bit more on the malt let's take it back even a step further and talk about barley and how important barley selection is. And what are some of the considerations you make when you're deciding which barley you want to start with to malt?
1: So in the beginning, um, I needed barley and I was having a hard time finding a farmer in the Hudson Valley that would grow barley for me or that had barley or that would even consider the idea that I needed 10 tons at a time, you know? And so I've been working with a person that had been talking about building a grain hub to integrate large farms with small guys like me, but they weren't yet running, but they said, we'll be running next year. And so we could give you barley next year, Hudson Valley grown barley, you know, and we're doing this grain hub. So I thought this is great. I'll be paying the farmer for barley and it's a cool farmer that's building a grain hub and they get it, you know, and I thought this is perfect, but I didn't have anything for that year and I really want to try something. Um, I spent a lot of time up in Quebec and um, up in Quebec, they have some really good barley and I knew about that. And so I ended up buying some barley in Quebec. I think it was Metcalf. So this barley up north of the St. Lawrence River in Quebec and a farmer had some, he had a nice price on it. I just had to figure out how to get it back. That's an adventure to me, you know, a lot of fun getting all the permits and everything you need for that. So I brought in some Quebec uh, barley, not a lot. Um, I didn't have any silos at that point, any storage at all. This is loose grain, but my friends that were building the hub, the the grain hub said, well, I have a silo. We don't have anything in it, so you can put your stuff in it for now. So I brought in this Quebec Metcalf barley and I bought Metcalf. It was really only because this farmer was a small farmer And He had been supplying barley to the Quebec brewers to the small high-end brewers and his barleys were regularly winning brewing competitions Like he was a thing so that well there you go so Brought some of his barley down from Quebec and then those were the first um, things that I malted on the floor and um, you've tasted that because the um, the malt whiskey that I sent you—that's the new make. I call it the new make whiskey. That one was Metcalf, and, and um, so we played around with Metcalf, really fast germinations. You know the typical Canadian—you know, you know the Canadian guys. This stuff just—it's rocket ship, man. It takes off, <laughs> three days on the floor. Oh my God, how do we stop this thing? So, but that's—you know—that in a way that's a—that's a good way to learn, right? Is that learn learn on a barley. That's a racehorse, um, and then when you get when you get your you know your nice thoroughbred horse in the end, you know it's not so skittish and it's you'll be like I know how to ride this thing. So I think that's all. It's always good to give yourself a challenge, but Metcalf is, is very very fast and um, and so that's how we began. And then um, then the Newdale was the barley that the grain hub farmer up north of Albany was farming, and so we used Newdale for a year. And then um, the second year that we bought grain from the Grain Hub and Newdale. So differences between the two are not that great. Metcalf and Newdale, I think are both, you might know better than I do. They're both these Canadian varieties, I think. They both have the same idea. Let's go because, um, you know, it's snowing in September. So I, I didn't see a lot of difference between the two. Newdale was a little bit slower. Newdale, the, the sprouts were, are never under the hole, so they're very easy to see. But I'll say this, that it's harder to control, that when, when Newdale decides to go, it goes. And you're going to have a very hard time not over-converting or under-converting with Newdale. Even though Metcalf was a little faster, it slowed up by the time you were getting the Acrospire. With Newdale, a little slower, but the Acrospire were just like boom, all of a sudden there it was, like I'm a plant now. So so Newdale's a little, I thought a little tough that way. Well, what turned out was that that the second year that we were malting, and this was back when I was telling you I was, I was liking my machine, but I was learning that it was going in a circle. <laughs> um, that is the time when I got the next vintage of Newdale and this vintage had pre-sprout. And so I was telling you, we finally got our act together. It started cooling off in September you know we're we're having more temperature control we are getting more evenness and then all of a sudden no november i had grain that wouldn't sprout so i had maybe a three with a pre-sprout you have a window of opportunity and and my window ran out in november and so i had already signed up for the conference in montana i knew my machine was was going in circles and now i had grain that wouldn't sprout so so <laughs> a perfect a- a perfect condition to go and talk to the experts uh, and be humiliated at your at your failures. And then I met you uh, and after the conference, uh, I ended up getting the Odyssey. And um, wow, oh my god, Odyssey is the best. I love Odyssey. It's slow but not too slow. It's even keeled. Now, given I had modified my machine my my rower now went straight like really nice so my machine changed at the same time that I got the Odyssey so maybe maybe I'm describing too much positive to the Odyssey but love the Odyssey it it's just nice even germination now we I had I have um, you know positive air pressure air rests controls really nice now I have automation on that so I don't even have to the machine watches it I, I really, really, really like Odyssey, and uh, I know from a grower's perspective, it's not its not the best thing in the world. I think that it's, the, I think the idea on Odyssey is that it's very, very dry. So you're in Nevada, it's very, very dry, um, and your yields are probably lower, and so you need something that's more drought-tolerant, and maybe Odyssey is that more drought-tolerant. Um, but the other thing that happened was that in preparation for the malt conference, <laughs> I read all of Briggs. I think I told you that. Uh, and, I, and I'm saying like, well, oh, glucoside nitrile? What is this glucoside nitrile? And the more I got in, into it, the more I'm like, well, be careful what you know, you know, because the more you know, the, the more limited you are. And, and if you're ethical, if you're really ethical and knowledgeable, now you got a real problem. <laughs> so, so the problem is, is that, is that Barley's produced this glucoside nitrile precursor to carbamate and the Scottish guys back in the 80s were sending Scotch samples to Canada and Canada had gotten this idea that they should put these things through a HPLC and see what's in them and they were they were ticking on carbamate right they were having there was too much uh, there was a curtain unknown carcinogen in too high a quantity in Scotch whiskey and so the Scots were like, holy crap, you know, this is not a good thing. One, we can't sell certain whiskeys in Canada, which is <laughs> not that big a deal, but but two, what if this ever gets out? So and then I met you and you had Odyssey, and Odyssey is no glucoside nitrile. And so it was perfect. That's that's how you know I got I got the Odyssey specifically because um, I thought, well, the Scots are probably onto something here. There's probably some kind of PR nightmare. Um, coming along. And so why not stay ahead of the curve? And also the idea that it, it, if you're very ethical and, and once you know something like that, can you really can you really look the other way?
0: And I think one of the important considerations I would make specific to glycosidic nitrile in single malt whiskey Is that in the US in terms of our infancy in the category? There's a lot on the legislative side that has yet to be defined And that's one critical factor that I think isn't quite yet really on anyone's radar But it will be and so I think it's really important for anyone out there making the stuff or thinking about making it, to really consider this and and look to your malt provider to find out whether your malt contains uh, GN. And if it does, from the perspective of being an advocate for the health and safety of your customer base, just don't use it.
1: I think my feeling on, on this is that the industry definitely has to make people, the producers aware, but I don't think you need to, I don't think you need to really legislate it. I think. I think it's gonna gonna happen anyway, like California. California is eventually going to start HPLCing whiskey, right? I mean, it's just gonna happen. And they're gonna say, what are the markers? And they're gonna look to Canada, and they're gonna say, okay, here are the markers. And then all of a sudden, there's gonna be some people that can't sell their whiskeys in California. I think that's how it's gonna happen. Uh, Or maybe it's Oregon, probably California. But my, my feeling on all this is really, I'm more of a buyer beware kind of guy. But that being said, I am a million percent for informing the buyer so that they know how to beware, (laughs) right? It's that if you believe in buyer beware, then you have to believe in education. Um, That being said, I don't, you know, I don't don't know really quite how much to talk about this stuff because I think it needs to be talked about. I think it needs to be talked about now because you're only going to end up with people that are having stocks of whiskey that are going to be going nowhere because I really think the that the horses left the barn on this, right? Do you feel the same way?
0: Yeah, I do, I do. And I think when we were talking with Aaron about this at the Malt Conference, he made a great point. And that's that if someone is drinking enough whiskey for this to really be that much of a concern, maybe they should be more concerned about the amount of alcohol they're drinking. Like, what's worse?
1: There is a gigantic difference between ethyl alcohol in glycoside and carbamate, right? Because here's the thing, is that there was a study, I'm trying to think of what it was done. It was done maybe 30 years ago by Oxford University. Um, how do you measure the advancement of a civilization? Like, how do we really, how do you say, okay, here's wealth and everything, but what's a good measure? Like what easy thing can you say, let's see how they're doing with this. And that'll give me a pretty good idea on the advancement of the civilization. And the best metric they could come up with is distribution of alcohol. So people are going to drink. It's practically a definition of human beings. It's just going to happen. So, so what I would say is that that alcohol is is there's nothing you're going to be able to do about that. But there's something you can do about carbonate. Well, and
0: and you have a good point. From the perspective of a producer, once you know about it and what the potential implications are. You have a moral obligation to let them know, but yeah, to your point, they ultimately have to make the decision for themselves. It's not your job to make that decision for them.
1: Absolutely, I think I think that that's. But for me, it's like I'm just not going to. I'm not even going to do. Um, I'm going to do non-GN varieties. I'm just going to do non-GN varieties. The the problem I have with that is that I would much rather use local grain, and it kind of puts me out of local grain. So we're actively trying to get some farmers to do some experimental lots of low GN stuff here in New York. But I mean, I think I'm going to end up getting my barley from out West again for my next, for my next purchase, because it's just not here in New York yet. And I'm just, I have a very hard time not going that way. And it's also is a sort of a side note on all this is that, is that I make a lot of rye whiskey and rye is high, right? Rye is high in GN and, um, Malting of rye produces even more, right? So, but there's nothing, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any such thing as a no GN rye. I don't think that that exists.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because I guarantee that hasn't been on anyone's radar.
1: No, but I think the malting, the malting definitely sort of exacerbates the situation. So, but the rye whiskey thing, the rye whiskey is um, for it, for New York, one of the things that I found out as I started distilling and pursuing my single malt distilling and pursuing my malt house, which delayed making whiskeys a little while. So I made brandies for a while. I I learned distilling on making brandies and making vodka the way that I had told the bank I was going to. And then someone said to me, well, you know, why don't you buy some corn or buy some rye? And so I started doing a little investigation. Well, New York state is really more of a rye whiskey place. So rye grows more indigenously here than corn does. And the reality in New York state, we're such a high cost of farming state that nobody's growing anything but number two field corn. So it's not like you're getting really flavorful corn. So I thought, well, let's try some rye. Ah, let's try some corn too. So I got a little corn, got a little rye, and I didn't have any, I didn't have a pot still yet. I didn't have my direct fired still yet. So I had the Christian Carl Brandy stills. Well, the Christian Carl Brandy stills and and number two field corn were not a match in heaven. I mean, maybe the idea is that the whiskey tastes like the barrel, but if the whiskey's, you know, not tasting like much, I don't, I'm not interested in even putting it in a barrel. But the rye whiskey, a rye, you make rye whiskey the way you make a brandy in a Christian Carl column still, and you're going to get good whiskey. It's like rye behaves like a, like a fruit uh, in the still. And so and we have really good rye. And it turns out this farmer I'm buying from up north of Albany has, has um, rye growing in sandy soil, cool conditions. And so we started making these really, really nice rye whiskeys. And so we now make a lot of rye whiskey, but it's simply because the indigenous rye made like a brandy is, is really fantastic whiskey. So so but but that's just the side note on how and why it is that we're becoming more and more known for rye whiskey. It's just because I have a farmer that grows spectacular rye and i'm a guy that's trying to have transparency so my 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 rye whiskeys taste like rye
0: so i have now had the opportunity to taste a few of your single malts and you're making some fantastic whiskey and knowing what i do about you and understanding your background as a winemaker i can definitely see how your approach to winemaking comes through in the quality of the spirit that said uh, when, when you're working your way through the process mentally and you're thinking about how you're going to make that single malt in terms of flavor, um, whether you're, you're you know flavor mapping or you have set flavor targets, um, what really comes to mind for you as the maker in terms of how you're going to make that product and what the end goal is?
1: Okay, so, um, so I talked a little bit before about lactic acid uh, and how that might affect the whiskeys. What I find is that if I let a little more lactic acid bacteria grow, uh, be it in the fermenter or in the malt house, although my malt house has become so clean that I, I can't really do lactic there anymore, but it's easy to do in the fermenter. But I think that the lactic so um so we're always going to be making this new make whiskey and then the new make idea is here's a whiskey that tastes like like the malt rather than like um anything else you did and so you've tasted that our new make and i think in the new make whiskey i like a fair amount of lactic acid contamination in that it gives it a big sort of a richness um that i think is a nice substitute for for the barrel from for the barrel aging and, and you get sort of a, a body and a, you get something out of that. So I'm really interested in, in, um, in continuing the idea of making new make whiskeys that have high lactic acid bacteria contamination, but just for the new make. Um, I think that as you age in the barrel that the barrels creating um, flavor profiles that would be competitive with that in the new make. So. So, already I have a step where the new make whiskey, which I don't, I don't know that anybody's, it's on anybody's radar at all either, right? If you, if you go to a Scottish distillery, every now and then you find one that gives you this thing. And I think it's because traditionally uh, an enthusiast would like to see okay, what does your malt taste like? You know, what does it taste like before you do your, your other things? And for me, a little more lactic acid bacteria contamination gives it a fullness gives it a richness of flavor that is a natural part of the grain germination, fermentation, and not a part of distillation, maturation. So for, the, for, the dist- for the maturation, for showing off maturation, um, I'm first of all, I'm, I'm trying to keep the lactic acid bacteria down for that. But surprisingly, I'm finding that Angus's idea, which is a Scottish distiller's idea, that you should open top wooden ferment in order to get some sort of contamination from the building, it's amazing how positive an effect that is on, on the whiskey. Um, it's the most surprising thing to me. Like I built it, so you think, well, I would have been sold on the idea, but you know, I built it thinking, oh, it's kind of a sketchy idea, but um, but they're pretty looking fermenters and if I need to keep them clean, I can. And it turns out that, that this uh, interaction with the biome is real uh, and it has a real effect on the whiskey. I have a very hard time as a scientist believing what I just told you, but it's the flavor is incontrovertible. If you <laughs> taste the difference between the two, you would never not open top wooden ferment again. Now, the caveat to that is I'm in a building that has 15 years of natural winemaking. So I've got a biome that's far more diverse than a typical winery or brewery would have. That
0: makes a lot of sense though, and and it really sounds a lot like Uh, you know, the Belgian brewing tradition, because that's very much sort of a staple of what makes Belgian beer so distinctive and unique. It's that open, wild, spontaneous fermentation and that whole idea of um, like a Saison. You know, that's what makes a Saison a Saison because it varies from region to region based on what kind of yeast in part is freely floating around. So, yeah, that makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah, and, and and sometimes when people visit, they say, "Are you still gonna make wine?" You go to "People know I'm making disc lists now." And I said, "I have to make wine. I have to maintain my biome." And they look at me like, "I love the look, you know." And like, let me give you a little explanation, right? So, but um, but anyway, so so that I think is kind of a that's kind of a a cool thing right there, and I, the influence of the direct fire still. I'm having, I have a hard time knowing how much it's a direct fire still, how much it's a pot still, because I haven't distilled on a lot of other people's equipment. I can tell you that um, I love my still, um, but I think a lot of distillers would tell you they love their stills. I would tell you that the still that I bought is like, is like the best rowing skull ever. I, it's like I don't even, I, I pull the oars once and I'm on the finish line. So it's, So cool, it was built by Chip Tate. So Chip Tate uh, is kind of famous in the industry, worked at Balcones, now he's on his own. He's decided he's gonna build his own stills. And I was talking to him, talking to him exactly the way that we've been talking. And uh, he's very similar in thinking to this. And he said, I'll build you a still, I said, great. So I have a Chip Tate still and really, really nice. So the, the still, the pot still that I have, one thing about it is it is a very tall column very tall neck, and then the line arm is a five-degree sloping back towards the still. So I've got a still that's I've got a pot still that's like rectifying a fair amount, and I did that because because I'm a winemaker, right? And because I'm trying to let the fine stuff show through. I'm not trying to make I'm not trying to overemphasize a single component. I'm trying to let a fineness through. You know, so maybe. Part of the reason I love my still so much is that if I had a shorter column, a line arm that was sloping away from the still, that I might be getting a heavier, thicker whiskey. Um, and I don't know that I'd be too happy with that, with that stew kind of a thing. I'm trying to make a soup, a nice clear soup. There I'll, there's some carrots down in there. Yep, we can see them. You know? So, but as far as the direct fire versus steam on that still, I don't, I can't really, say that I can tell you what the paralysis, this, this idea of the fried egg is in the whiskey um, because I can't, I can't separate it out and I don't have a still like this that runs on steam. You know, I wish I could say more about that, but open-top wooden fermenters, I can say that you definitely want to do. And this idea of, um, of if you're trying to emphasize the maltiness of your whiskey and not the aging... Um, Of the whiskey that a little a little extra lactic vaccine bacteria will give you nice Will give you a nice complexity in a a young whiskey and a new make whiskey
0: Now I want to talk a little bit more about your whiskeys Specifically and I want to know how many different expressions do you currently have bottled? Um, How many do you foresee in the future and what is the differentiating factor? when like you taste them that makes you say, Hmm, you know, that's, that's different. That's kind of its own thing.
1: Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, we've done that for new make, uh, we've done that for whatever my idea is of whiskey. That's, that's matured out and we'll talk about that. I'm sure. Um, the, the big, the other big thing that happened was, so we go back to this idea that I started making rye because rye is the thing that, that, that this place wants to make. You know, it's like uh, if you were in Burgundy and you're growing white grapes, um, Chardonnay is probably what you'd be growing because that's just the right thing. So for New York, you know, we're, we're rye. There's no doubt about it. Our rye is spectacular. So one of the things that happened is I w- when I was heading to that Montana malting conference was I had this idea in my head. So I had been making some, some single malt whiskeys that I had been blending with some rye whiskey and then into the barrel. So I was blending malt whiskey with a little bit of rye. And the idea was, let's make New York malt whiskey. And what's special about New York is our rye. So let's get a little uh, into the into the malt whiskey. So I started doing these blends that I called Angus's blend in memory of Angus McDonald, you know, cause he was big into the terroir and all that. And I think he would have been all over this. He would have malted the rye, but I didn't malt the rye in this case. So I was putting a little bit of rye whiskey um, into the malt whiskey and aging it. And I was finding that, um, that they, were, they were different enough and they were unique enough in that way that, okay, this, these are two good ideas. Malt whiskey will mature that. Malt whiskey blended with a little rye whiskey will mature that. But then I started thinking about that a little bit more um, I thought a little bit about malting the rye, but I think I'm in the I'm in the camp of the errands of the world saying malting rye is really not doing what you think you're doing. Uh, and I hate not doing what I think I'm doing. I'm the guy that wants my ceramics to be colored by what they are, right? So if it's not doing what you say, then don't bother doing it. But anyway, that being said, one of the things that I that I had ideas that I had going into the malting conferences, I should be putting some rye malt, some rye uh, mash into my barley malt mash and, and doing a combined, I should combine these ingredients. Like I shouldn't put carrots into beef stew by making a beef stew and a carrot soup and dumping the carrot soup in the beef stew. That's what I was doing. I was making rye whiskey and malt whiskey and combining. What I should do is I should put some carrots in the beef stew, right? and put that into the barrel, right? So I, one of the things I went into the, the multi um, conference was to learn more about the decoction mashing, more about adding adjunct. And the, the difficulty there is rye is the last thing you would ever, well, other than oatmeal, <laughs> the last thing you would ever want to add to, your, to your, your malt louder tank because the whole point is you're setting up a fine grain bed, you're doing everything you can to the, the husk bed, So you're doing everything you can to create the filter medium and then your idea is to blend in some goo so let's throw in some paste you know rye like really thick gooey so i'm but i thought you know what this is a this is a nice challenge let's let's see what we can accomplish and so uh, i came back from the conference Knowing a little bit more about how I might want to do that adjunct mashing, even though I don't think they talked about it really in class so much. I had enough discussions, and maybe you were there for a couple of them when I was talking about my crazy idea of adding the rye, you know, put the carrots in the stew while you're cooking the beef stew. So I came back and I started trying that, and I got to where I can effectively do it. Now... It's not 100% rye mash. It's a rye corn mash that I'm that I'm bringing in as an adjunct. But we've been able to create fermentables that have a rye component that's in balance with the barley malt component that adds the New York idea to malt whiskey, um, but by adding an adjunct. So now that takes us away from if if malt whiskey is 100% malted barley, um, that's not going to work because we have maybe I don't know 15%. Of, uh, of rye in there. But I think that that was, I'll tell you what, that, that I was really happy to go through that exercise and I'm still doing some of those, but I've kind of gone back to doing just 100% malt mashes and not adding the rye component to it. And the reason for that, we'll, we'll get to here in a few minutes when we start talking about maturation, like long, longer term maturation. But but I'll, I'll say this, that the whiskeys that I've made that are where I've combined the rye mash into the barley uh, and then distilled together, fermented together, distilled together, are superior to the ones where I blended the rye whiskey with the malt whiskey going into the barrel. Now, what does it mean to say maybe I could blend malt whiskey post-aging with rye whiskey after aging, and then I'll get another concept? So so what do I have for expression so far? I have... (laughs) I have new make, I have the blend of rye, a little bit of rye whiskey and malt whiskey. I have malt whiskey for maturation as opposed to the new make. Um, And I have co-mashed, co-fermented rye and malt whiskey for maturation. So I think that gets me four prior to maturation ideas. You know, new make, a little bit more lactic, a little bit more crazy, barley malt meant for maturation, Blended whiskeys into maturation and blended mash distilled into maturation. So yeah, it's it's interesting because I joined the I joined the Balt Whiskey Association and I started reading about what their goals were and I'm like, well, that's not really what I'm going after and I don't want to I don't really feel like being an influencer in that. I don't want to try to actively say, well, this is what I want to do. So you guys should do this. I don't really, I don't feel at all that way. Uh, I'm, I'm the new kid on the block and I don't think the way a lot of people think. And I don't want people to be forced. I, I, I want to entertain ideas, um, but then you, you do whatever ideas you want. These guys already seem to have, have their ideas fairly intact. That being said, since you're asking me the question, <laughs> um, so the idea of how you're... So we haven't talked about the maturation yet, but I'm still... The hardest thing that I have with uh, in the malt whiskey category is the federal government's requirement that malt whiskeys be aged in new oak. Because I think it's just too... It's too much artifice on the natural art that's going on uh, in, in malt whiskeys. So you'll, and you'll... So my my thinking is, is that... The definition of American single malt whiskey is sort of, they're not gonna, they're not gonna go on this either new oak or used oak. They're gonna say whatever, right? I think they're not, they're not deciding on that because how can you decide on that? You can't fault for people the following federal law to make malt whiskey. And I, what I would say is, well, make whiskey distilled from malt mash and nobody's gonna know the difference, right? The consumer's not gonna, and, and whiskey distilled from malt mash, you don't have to use new barrels. So that's what I do. Mine all say whiskey to silver malt mash. But I personally, I would say that it's a mistake to go down the road of using um, new charred oak for for single malts. Beyond that, I don't know. Um, You know, there's all these ideas about proof in the barrel and the difference in flavors we get because of proof in the barrel. So in New York State, we have an empire whiskey an empire rye whiskey category. An Empire Rye has to go into the barrel at less than 115 proof. Um, but I wouldn't want to impose that sort of a thing on malt whiskey. I think my big thing would be, you know, let's, let's try to lay off the new oak and force people to, to concentrate on uh, an inner complexity um, rather than an outer, an outer facade of flavor.
0: Okay, so on that point... Let's talk a little bit more about maturation and specifically about your approach and strategy when it comes to like barrel selection and just walk me through uh, your thought process on that.
1: Okay. uh, First of all, I like large barrels. So for my malt whiskeys, I don't, I don't age anything in small barrels at all. Um, I like um, X wine barrels for obvious reasons. Um, I like ex Pinot Noir barrels because I think Pinot Noir is a, is a grape that, um, that's not going to get in the way of anything. It tends to be transparent. It tends to, you can see through the soup with Pinot Noir. Um, and so I have a bunch of uh, really nice um, third-use Pinot Noir barrels from California, from Sonoma. Top quality French oak, three vintages of Pinot Noir aged in them, and that's my primary um, that's my primary aging uh, barrel at this point. It's kind of what I I started with the stock of these things. Um, I have done some, I have I have put some single malt into some ex rye barrels. So there's another possibility for rye expression, right? So malt whiskey aged in X rye barrel we can add that to combination of rye whiskey, malt whiskey, combination of rye malt uh, and, and, and uh, barley uh, malts you know into a barrel. I, I don't know I don't I don't know that that's going very far. I had some X rye barrels and I had some malt whiskey and I thought I better do that I better do this maybe, maybe that'll turn out to be the way to do it. And in fact, um, in fact, Something recently happened that made me think, you know, this is this is that might actually work really well. And what happened was is that I started thinking about the more and more that I became a distiller and I became a malt whiskey distiller and I've got more and more feeling like, hey, I'm a part of this distilling community. The more intrigued I was about the idea that in that in Scotland they're doing ex bourbon barrels, so they're getting ex bourbon barrels and aging their scotch in them. And I thought, well, you know, on the idea of um, you know, sustainability and natural resources and all that. And wouldn't it be really cool to get some of those ex-bourbon barrels back and put my malt whiskey in them? You know, sort of a repatriation, the repatriation of uh, bourbon. And it had come from Scotland. I thought, well, I'm against this idea of, of burning peat in my kiln, but maybe I'm not against the idea of the flavor acquired in the barrel in Scotland, repatriated. You know, because that's a nice little story there, too, right? So if it works, it's kind of a cool little story.
0: Yeah, all right, and that's it for episode number two of three with Steve Osborne of Stout Ridge Winery and Distillery. Next week, uh, we'll dive a little deeper into maturation and start popping some bottles and, and give five different samples of a single malt to try and talk about them each in a little bit more detail. Huge thanks once again to Fort Collins, Colorado's own troubadour extraordinaire Michael Kirkpatrick for writing this week's theme music entitled Made of Spring. If you love it like I do, check him out on his website, michaelkirkpatrickmusic.com, or just search for him on iTunes. He's there. Hit subscribe to keep up on the latest in American single malt. And if you have uh, any questions about anything you heard on this week's episode or if there's a topic you'd like for me to explore, just hit me up at asmwpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, I'd love to hear from you if you're a distillery with an interesting backstory or a whiskey that you'd like to talk about. Also, I've got a website in the works, so I'm hoping to have that up and running here in the near future. For updates on that and other relevant single malt shenanigans... Follow me on Instagram by searching for at asmwpodcast or at facebook.com slash ASMW podcast. And of course, you can be a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash asmw. Yeah, regardless of how you connect, just connect. Until next time.